The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box. Rising commodity prices strain China's recovery as the world's second largest economy sees factory gate prices rise 9% ahead of expectations. Washington edges closer to passing its largest infrastructure spending bill in over a decade, with the Senate nearing a final vote on the package before it goes to the House. The Oracle of Omaha bets on himself. Berkshire Hathaway's Warren Buffett buys back a record $25 billion of company stock after posting a 21% surge in second quarter earnings. Sally Aramco looks to boost output capacity after reporting a massive 288% rise in second quarter earnings, but fears of a drop in demand drive crude prices lower. And Paris takes the torch with the city handed the Olympic reigns after the Tokyo 2020 Games draw to a close. This as France begins implementing its health pass plan despite huge protests across the country over the weekend. So we talked Friday, you'll remember, for regular viewers, all about the expectations around the non-farm payrolls numbers. Will it be a bigger number than expectations? Will it be a lower number than expectations? Ultimately, how will the markets react to either of those figures? And I think, interesting, we got uh, the markets passing judgment, ultimately, on what was perceived to be clearly a better-than-expected figure. There were also a number of other interesting figures in there, like the 4% wages figure, the unemployment unemployment improvement as well. So in the round, I think you can say it was an unambiguously good story in terms of the employment pickup. The question is, Did the markets like it in terms of what it might suggest or signal as far as the Federal Reserve is concerned and the prospect of imminent tightening or at least tapering? Well, we got a bit of a split decision as we wrapped up. The cyclicals benefited, I think, from the economic messaging. So the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the S&P managing to eke out gains, good gains to the close ultimately. The Nasdaq, though, question marks as to whether you want to be in that growth story if indeed we are going to see cyclicals carry the ball from here on in and we're ultimately going to see higher interest rates, uh, a reflection perhaps of inflationary pressure and also strong growth and higher employment. So the Treasury market, I think, gave us a little bit of an indication of uh, how the Treasury market feels then about the likelihood of tapering. And we've bounced back, haven't we, on the key benchmark 10-year yield here. We're now back in 130 territory, one spot three zero territory, ultimately, as the market tries to take on board any shift in expectations around interest rates. But I have a head scratcher for you, and hopefully you can help me understand this. Let's pull up WTI, Brent and Gold. 
Now, th this is the bit that I'm not understanding. So perhaps gold, uh, we can kind of understand how gold might react to the prospect of higher interest rates, given that you don't actually get paid for owning gold, but you do get an interest rate if you own cash and interest rates are going higher. But gold sold down a bit. Maybe some of that money found its way back into cyclical stocks. But why exactly did oil sell down here if the improvement in the jobs number told you that the economy is strong and is getting stronger and the prospects are improving for the seven, eight, nine million or so unemployed to go back into the workforce. Shouldn't that send a signal that we're going to get a pickup in growth and ultimately there will be higher demand for oil and energy? And yet, Perhaps what this tells you is a story about financial speculation in the commodity segment because it shows you that a lot of people who've been long in oil perhaps were starting to reflect on what the higher cost of capital might mean for speculation in commodity prices. That's my assumption, but I'd be interested to hear from you because I think it's perverse or rather peculiar if you get a very strong economic data point on growth and the recovery of the economy and yet you get lower oil prices. Let's have a look at the Asian session. Uh, this is the picture as far as the Asian markets are concerned. And I think there's uh, also another positive message in here because where do you see the benefits of higher US growth and consumption? Quite often, the Asian markets should be those strong beneficiaries because they are selling in to the US consumer market. Well, Hong Kong up uh, nearly nine-tenths of 1% here. Shanghai uh, benefiting from that story, I suspect. But there are also a few messages in the China data this morning that we can go over. South Korea, well, we're basically just flatlining right now. Karen Cho is positively glowing after her break. Good morning, Karen. Nice to have you back on board. Come on then. Let's turn from holidays back to work mode and the markets. Penny, for your thoughts, you've had a, a, a good spell to think about what's going on with these economies and markets. I got to say, I woke up this morning, I was still dreaming about swimming in the sea. But, uh, you know, hey, if you think about to what's happening right now in the markets, it does look as though you're getting various different signals. You've got a market climbing to record levels. You've got a, a fantastic uh, set of earnings that keeps on crossing, telling you just how well companies are doing and sales have rebounded. They're doing absolutely everything possible to turn that into profits. And investors have been surprised with the scale and the escalation in those numbers that they're seeing in this quarter. That said, you, you're pointing to one Warning signs in the market. I think the oil markets are flashing up some issues around demand on the track. And you're also seeing in short-term money markets with a lot of bond markets and managers are watching very, very closely because you're seeing a lot of funds and investors, companies parking money with the Fed, which is not necessarily a positive sign or showing one of confidence about where we're going from here. And what you've got, I mean, look at the narrative. You've got companies that were planning on workers coming back to the office from September now postponing those plans because of the Delta variant. So this reopening that was meant to happen after Labor Day in the States has been kicked into the long grass, possibly early next year, maybe a little bit later. 
And that's changing economic forecasts. If you think about the amount of macroeconomic forecasts that we're expecting some normality to hit in September, that's now being adjusted because we're just not getting to the point where we can reopen the economy on the back of vaccines properly. So I think there's a delay, a limbo, a sense of suspension in the air for some market participants about what to do with those bets. And they're playing it very cautious as a result. We've seen a lot of money lost by hedge fund managers on that reflation trade. They've been on the wrong side of the bet for, for several weeks. So Underlying this market, I think there is still an air of caution, despite the fact you've got those record levels on the stock market, Jeff. So yeah. there are some mixed cues for investors. And it sums up what I saw on holiday. Some people very much participating, other people just not going anywhere near overseas travel whatsoever. Investors are taking the same approach, I think. Yes, I don't think you got that tan from a wet weekend in Clacton, did you? Or on one of Steve's famous campsites in the Welsh mountains. But my lips are sealed, Karen. I won't reveal where you've come back from if you don't. So I thought that was a brilliant summary. And of course, that issue of caution, I think, partly reflected in concerns about this economy. We've got some big, big Chinese data this morning to talk about. And of course, uh, the big regulatory onslaught that we've seen in recent weeks has people pausing for thought about what they think is going on in the world's second largest economy. Well, the data this morning will give people more food for thought because we had a very strong PPI inflation number. So this is a reflection of prices at the factory gate. Factory gate inflation rising faster than expected in July. Clearly, manufacturers are grappling with rising prices for commodities and raw materials and inevitably supply chain disruptions. Then let's take a look at consumer price pressures, CPI, consumer prices. Well, they were also higher than forecasts, rising 1% from a year ago, but nothing like the spike that we're seeing here on the producer price side. Let me just point out something interesting on the exports and imports data as well here. So both of these numbers, as you can see, were somewhat weaker than the expectation. But I think the important one to look at here is, well, look, they're both important, but Does the import number suggest that domestic demand continues to slow in China? While the export numbers were pretty close to the expectation, what that meant was actually China's trade surplus was higher than expectations, um, which maybe sends another message to Washington about the way this trade deal is working out that was negotiated under President Trump. But just setting that aside for a moment, let's back up. Let's have a a few thoughts on the inflation data from Sam, who joins us this morning. Uh, And Sam, obviously, this raises some questions, I think, about margin pressure for Chinese companies as producer prices run way ahead of consumer prices. Absolutely, Jeff. I mean, certainly the pressures persist for these Chinese producers over there in terms of the upstream price pressure as these commodity prices have remained elevated, things like coal and also steel, a lot of what China buys. And that's why we did see those factory gate prices rising more than expected. So that 9% multi-year high once again, we already saw that in May. And that comes despite Chinese authorities really trying to rein in what they call these unreasonable price hikes to try to 
prevent any pass-through to the Chinese consumer. So far, that sticker shock does appear to be limited, and that does suggest that these downstream manufacturers are still absorbing the costs. And as you pointed out, that has raised a lot of concerns about these already squeezed profit margins. And that's why we have seen uh, the PBOC sort of coming out with these things like triple R cuts to help particularly the small and medium-sized businesses in the face of these higher commodity prices. Uh, There has been some suggestion, though, because, of course, the big question is how long will this last, that the PPI inflation could ease in the second half moving forward as Chinese demand eases as fiscal stimulus uh, is certainly starting to taper off. Now, that CPI was really interesting. It eased to 1% year-on-year in July. This has largely been a a story of falling food prices, as we've been talking in recent months. They actually fell 3.7%. Pork was down 43.5%. Of course, this is China's favourite meat, and this has a huge impact on that CPI uh, headline number. Now, the non-food prices rose 2.1% thanks to summer holidays, people catching trains and planes and staying in accommodation. And so uh, this was really dual forces driving this CPI headline number. So this has been described as a bit of a fuel pull and a pork drag with pork offsetting those higher energy costs for now. And certainly that is expected to remain fairly mild uh, in the near term. Karen, back to you. Sam, thank you for running us through the Chinese data. Elsewhere, ByteDance has reportedly revived IPO plans after working to address concerns from Chinese regulators. The owner of the short video app TikTok is looking to list in Hong Kong by early 2022, according to the Financial Times. ByteDance's decision to shelve its listing early this year reportedly earned it goodwill from authorities, in contrast to Beijing's crackdown on DG Xuxing after its US listing back in June. Alibaba shares are under pressure amid an emerging sexual assault scandal. The tech giant has fired several staff and launched an investigation after a woman's account of an assault by her boss, originally posted to the company's intranet, was then shared widely online. Beijing's wide-ranging crackdown on domestic tech giants has knocked $87 billion off the net worth of the sector's top leaders since the start of July. This according to calculations done by the Financial Times. Regulators revealed Alibaba and Meituan joined a meeting over the weekend on improving safety and labour rights for delivery workers. Amid reporting Beijing is set to slap Meituan with a billion-dollar antitrust fine. Tencent shares are higher despite government prosecutors launching a lawsuit over its messaging app, WeChat's Youth Mode. Alice Wang joins us, Portfolio Manager of Quaro Capital, to help understand uh, exactly what's happening here in China with these technology companies. Alice, nice to have you on the programme. Thanks for coming to us this morning. Uh, Just give us your interpretation. What is Beijing trying to achieve with this multi-faced attack on tech businesses? Thank you very much. I think it's important to put into context that China basically went through industrialization and the digital revolution in about 40 years, a process which took the West um, over four, um, you know, 400, around 400 years. And so in China, there's a lot of regulation that kind of needs to catch up. And this is actually happening globally. The concerns around data privacy, around antitrust, around labor protection 
around sexual harassment. These are all global concerns. And so what China is doing with tech companies is a, I think it's, it's, it's going to anticipate more sort of regulation globally. So if we put aside the kind of Western narrative that has been, um, you know, uh, has the concerns around the recent crackdowns around education, which I think is a separate case. You know, this, this, the, the multifaceted uh, regime, as you're talking about, is really about regulation. And this has, you know, this is a global phenomenon. That does seem to be, in particular with the education story, um, an aspect, I think that the phrase is common prosperity, but this idea that you can um, level up, if I borrow a phrase from Boris Johnson, by ultimately holding back, um, it's, a, it's an interesting interpretation of a sort of socialist capitalist model. Uh, We've tried things like this in the past with um, incomes and wage policies in the UK, and by and large, they generally fail because the market finds another way of providing. Um, Why should it be successful this time uh, in the way that Beijing is uh, trying to achieve it? Well, I think in the case of education in particular, I think we have to go back to the root problem. And the root problem for China is the demographic pressures. And this is also not a specific problem to China. All developed Western economies deal with slowing demographics. The way that the West is dealing with it is through immigration. Now, that's off the table for China. And so the root cause for China here is the total cost of education, uh, is the total cost of having a child. That includes education, that includes house housing, that includes child care. And so these are the kind of sectors that are being targeted in terms of reducing that burden. It is to address a wider, uh, you know, larger and potentially more existential problem for the Chinese government. And in, in regards to your question about common prosperity, why this will work? Well, let's, you know, I, I think in education's case, it was a particularly toxic sector. You know, there's a book about you know, tiger moms and in, in the West, people are so shocked by the phenomenon of, of tiger moms. But, you know, think about a whole country of tiger moms trying to send their students, uh, their children for zero sum places and, you know, taking rote classes. I mean, it, it is a it, it is an industry that was an anomaly in China um, and for good reason. And so I do think that this is a specific uh, issue. And actually, we had flagged it about two months ago. We had said, you know, the government has been signaling this, you know, for since March that education, this tutoring is a problem. And so we actually use the words that, you know, this is kind of this, you know, it's off to the guillotine for education. And, you know, so so this, the Chinese government, you know, has been signaling and, uh, you know, talking about common prosperity, talking about these goals for a long time. Alice, can we talk about what money markets are doing then? Because $87 billion has been shaved off the net worth of those tech titans in China, as you've seen this crackdown on technology, but also in the education sector. And you've seen a subtle reweighting by investors towards the areas that the Communist Party does seem to be supportive, renewable energy, for instance, uh, automobiles with a push towards electric vehicles. Is this the right positioning? Or are we in one of those moments where we're seeing a short-term correction around technology and investors should just look at it as a re-entry point? 
Right. Um, I, I, I do think that the kind of trade in renewables and safe sectors, as you call it, is very, very crowded right now. Um, and, you know, and, and I think that capital has been pushed there uh, because of a lack of certainty in other sectors. Now, that doesn't mean that those moves are fundamentally justified. And in the case of the rest of those sectors, I think it's still being put under pressure by this Western present conception that China is a communist country and, uh, you know, and, and it will nationalize everything. Now, if you just take a step back and realize that 700 million jobs in China that are private enterprise, and if Beijing has an unemployment that exceeds seven or eight percent, it will have a serious problem. Right. If we if we just say this narrative is unreasonable and we think, you know, this is just regulatory concerns that are happening all over the world, then I think that we can take a more rational view that some of these sectors are probably oversold, um, especially relative to U.S. tech, tech globally, actually, um, you know, in Korea, India, and it, going forward, you know, it, China uh, may be easing, as you say, where the U.S. might be tightening next year. And China Internet still looks good, you know, for on a 20 percent growth, we, we think. Um, so, you know, I, I think that actually we are probably nearer to the end than to the beginning. Um, but of course, let's stay aligned with the companies now that will stick to regulation. And I think that that's where the opportunities will come. Alice, can we talk about the regulation a bit more? You make the point that there's been a positive impact from some of the changes, namely around working practices, the, the length of time that some of the tech employees had to work on Monday to, to Saturday, I believe, but also around data privacy. And just walk us through the changes and what that has meant for the tech sector. Right. So there, you know, I, I, I actually worked in China in 2011 for a Tencent venture with Groupon. And I remember working those nine, nine, six hours. Um, I remember how brutal it was in the competition. And there was absolutely no choice because if you didn't work those hours, uh, your competitor would. You know, and and so, you know, you have a, a wave of, you know, Chinese employees who are put under these extremely challenging working conditions. And, you know, actually due to all of the regulation that's come in now um, and the policy signals, uh, it, the, uh, uh, many of them have actually said that the 996 policy is under review or going to be eschewed entirely. So this is a very positive development. Um, and then uh, with respect to data privacy, there are um, all these companies are being reviewed and they have to comply. And so, you know, I think um, this is a this, as I said, this is an antecedent to, I think, what is happening in Europe, what is happening globally. And, um, you know, China is setting an example, I think, for what what should be done with data privacy. Um, the other thing is that, you know, a lot of this information is very sensitive. And uh, given, you know, the, the relationship between the US and China, that China doesn't want some of this information to be, uh, you know, available to foreign governments, for example, very sensitive transport data. This is totally understandable to national security concerns, right? So I think let's step back, let's take it from the government's perspective. And we can see that actually quite a bit of it is very rationally justified. Alice, we're going to wrap it up. Thanks for joining us this morning. Alice Wang, Portfolio Manager at Quero Capital. Moving on, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway bounces back, but warns that the long-term impact of the pandemic is still impossible to estimate. 
And for more on the tech crackdown in China, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. U.S. non-farm payrolls increased by over 940,000 in the month of July, as hiring rose at its fastest pace in nearly a year. The unemployment rate fell to a 16-month low of 5.4%, with about 1 million more job openings in the country than people looking for work. Leisure and hospitality led the gains as restrictions continue to ease across the country. President Biden hailed the numbers lauding the over 4 million jobs created since he took office. While our economy is far from complete, and while we doubtlessly will have ups and downs along the way as we continue to battle the Delta surge of COVID, what is indisputable now is this. The Biden plan is working, the Biden plan produces results, and the Biden plan is moving the country forward. A $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill backed by President Biden is edging closer to passage after clearing a Senate vote 68 to 29 on Sunday. 19 Republicans joined their Democrat and independent colleagues in supporting the bill following painstaking negotiations over amendments and the amount of debate time. Now, final uh, Senate passage of that bill will inject about $550 billion into the nation's lagging infrastructure. It's expected as early as today or tomorrow before being sent to the House of Representatives. Let's take a quick look at U.S. futures as we get set up for the trading week. Don't forget closing out that Friday session around record levels and uh, the Markets still eyeing a lot of the earnings reports that have been crossing. So far, we are looking just a little bit soggy at this stage. Uh, soft tone right across the Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq, Jeff. Warren Buffett's investment company Berkshire Hathaway has rebounded with second quarter operating profit jumping 21% year on year to $6.7 billion. Berkshire's various businesses range from energy to auto insurance, all benefiting, of course, from the easing of coronavirus restrictions. But the investment company warning the long-term effects of the pandemic cannot be, quote, reasonably estimated yet. Instead of making big new bets, Berkshire has continued to buy its own stock, completing $6 billion worth of buybacks in the previous quarter. And you can go to uh, CNBC Pro to read more on Warren Buffett's portfolio. A fascinating piece on how the portfolio is concentrated in just four key stocks. So uh, take a look at that story. And of course, uh, bear in mind, uh, Berkshire, a key play on the economic recovery, Karen.
Yeah, very much a reflation trade if you look at uh, some of the exposures and where Berkshire has done particularly well. I think it was worth noting that some areas, some business units were doing better than what they were doing before the pandemic, which is exactly what the markets have been trading on. But the question is whether that continues as we continue to, to look at the uncertainty now around the Delta variant and the compression of economic activity. The other key points, I think, of the takeaway from the Berkshire Hathaway report was that they sold more stock than they bought. Is that a warning sign to investors as we trade around these records? Is it worthwhile taking some bets off the table and turning those paper profits into real profits at this stage? Also, the record cash that Berkshire Hathaway was sitting on, that they didn't deploy that into the markets through acquisitions or reinvestments. That does send some concerning signals to the markets. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.